0: Hello, folks. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. <clears throat> it's Friday, February 16th, 2018. And today I want to start by acknowledging the heavy heart that I think we all have around these, I guess it's 17 now, beautiful people who have, were gunned down at the Florida High School on Wednesday by a 19-year-old former student and um, and see if we can respond in some kind of a more integral way and be uh, more of a solution to the problem than we might otherwise be. I did an episode in early October of last year after the Las Vegas shooting. I called it the gun problem. And I talked about the unique American character and psyche and and circumstances, really, of our founding that create this situation where we have 4% of the world's population and 48% of the civilian guns. We have 40 times the gun deaths of Great Britain, which is our, you know, sort of cousin country that we most identify with. and. Um, And I also shared some thoughts on the psyche and circumstances of America's traditionalists, which is the 35% of the population whose center of gravity is at the amber stage of development. And that's, you know, where their self-sense is, where they feel at home. And it's in that, in a sense, pre-modern, even though they can work in the modern world, of course, uh, but their their home is, it's home and hearth and patriotism and so forth, and that's where the majority of the guns are. Uh, that uh, percentage of the population who owns guns overall is shrinking. It's down to 35%. But that 35% own 330 million guns, and 1% of those people own half of them. So, you know, I'm going to share a portion of that talk in a couple minutes um, because, you know, I unpack those two points of thesis. And uh, but in the meantime, I want to just share some thoughts on this particular Florida um, situation and what um, What I've learned since then or you know, how my thinking has evolved and, you know, some of the particulars of this particular situation. Um, I think that one of the things that we can see in in terms of the culture and the evolution of the culture is that the gun situation, or or maybe, maybe better put, the situation of these mass shootings, particularly in schools, is one of the central battles in the culture war, and we have the three stages of development that are at war in, in these culture wars. We have the postmodernists, so we have the modernists, and we have the traditionalists, and they all point to different problems or different uh, reasons for these shootings. Uh, postmodernists tend to see it the way I did in October, and I, I, I named the. Podcast of the gun problem and talked about guns and that is for sure a piece of the problem that there's so many guns and that these guns are so deadly these semi-automatics and assault uh, rifles. the next explanation that sort of center of gravity modern is that it's a mental health problem now we all have we take these into some account, but the mental health problem is uh, sort of centers around the orange or modern center of gravity. And then we get to the traditionalists and the traditionalists see it as a problem of evil. As Ted Cruz said yesterday, that there's evil is just always gonna be with us. And if you look at the coverage in the mass media, you have MSNBC and CNN focusing on the guns primarily and the mental health issues secondarily. And you virtually never hear about the evil problem. It'll be a one-off from time to time. That's switched on Fox, which is the traditionalist um, media source. And there it's the mental health. We all agree on that. There's the problem of evil was spoken of a lot on Fox. And the idea of it being a problem of guns, uh, to the degree that they mention it, they defend it and point out how the left is overstating their case and why the left is wrong. So this is the culture war. This is supposed to be happening. We fight our way forward. As integralists, we want to see the piece of the truth of all of that. And I think one of the things that's uh, interesting and notable about this Florida shooting is that this 19-year-old sort of hits all of those bases. Now, he was definitely over-weaponized with these AR-15 semi-automatic rifles, which enables him to shoot multiple people without reloading. And it's, you know, do we really need these in our culture? We see that he was clearly, obviously disturbed. He was a mental health case. He was spotted, uh, he was expelled from the school. He was uh, spotted by the FBI or at least somebody reported him to the FBI in January that he was planning a school shooting, and he apparently fell through the cracks. So that's uh, where we could definitely improve things. But what's interesting to me, and this is sort of a bigger question, is this idea of evil. And is a kid like this possessed by an ontological force, an intelligent force, that means to do harm. And an ontological force being that thing that exists whether or not you believe in it. (laughs) It just is part of the fabric of the universe. And I actually am not entirely sure about that. A lot of really smart people think that there is an ontological evil. But I think a better explanation to me is um, that it's We have people who are just arrested at a hard stage of egocentric. And there's a time when we arrive into the power of egocentrism or this uh, sort of magenta red stage of development, where we're learning that we have power over the world and we have power over other living things and power over people. And there's a fascination with that power. And part of that power is inflicting pain. And so you see these videos online of the little two-year-old running over and smacking the cat, and the cat j- jumps up in the air, and the kid goes backwards, and it's all very cute and no harm done. But you can see you know, that little kid was malicious. He was going over to hit that cat. Just in a way, it's, it's fascination see what's happening. He's learning about his world. He's learning about his power. And I can remember myself in first grade being so fascinated that the older kids would catch these flies in our old-fashioned windows in our old school and pull their wings off. And I would watch it, and these flies would be tortured and rolling around, and it was fascinating in the same way that horror movies are fascinating. And these video games are fascinating that are, you know, just as horrible as you could ever imagine in terms of the inflicting of pain. And that there is something that is, um, th- th- there's an appropriate stage of development where that comes online, but you want it to be civilized pretty quickly. And it is generally, you know, get four and five years old, we get it civilized, except some kids don't. And I've talked about that on this uh, Daily Evolver before, The research that's being done on what we used to call psychopathic children, now we call them children with callous and low empathy disorder. But in their most extreme cases, they actually enjoy the inflicting of pain and the idea of killing. And there's a corollary in the collective evolution of humanity, in the tribal stage of development, where it just seems to, particularly in the cultures that were naturally warlike in that they were competing with other tribes, that they fought essentially for fun, or just to keep their skills sharp. And they had elaborate torture rituals that, where they would, it was about the inflicting of pain for as long, as intensely as they could. And there was a fascination, the same kind, I was reading about the Comanches and the author was talking about this sort of classic example of pulling the wings off flies and said that these warriors were basically operating at that stage. They were adults, but they had that six-year-old fascination with, with pain and, and, and hurting. And this, this is something that, we're, that we see in this kid, this um, Nicholas Cruz, I guess is his name. Who had this fascination and we see it in other kids and, and people, even in the new uh, the Las Vegas guy to some degree, but this, this Florida kid was uh, apparently textbook and so yes, part of it is getting better at spotting this order, this disorder in people and whether it's evil or just an arrested, hard egocentric magenta-red level of development. I'm not sure. I'd be interested in hearing what you folks think. You can email me at Jeff at dailyevolver.com uh, and we'll sort this out. So um, let me see if I want to get into all of this. Uh, yeah, why not? And then I'll play the, the part from, the, from the, the talks about sort of the cultural and uh, stage development aspects. I've talked to a couple people since the Florida shooting, both parents, and they both said the same thing. I'm terrified of sending my kids to school and my kids are terrified. And that's a really interesting thing because, um, you know, there's really two responses to it. One is that statistically, actuarially, there's not much reason to be concerned. It's, uh, we have since Sandy Hook, and I think it was 2012, we've had an average of 27 school shooting deaths per year. Now, that's horrible, and every one of them is an utter tragedy. Uh, and, um, but it's a small fraction of how many were killed in cars, 9,000. Uh, 37 kids were killed in hot cars. Their parents forgot about them and left them in a hot car. Uh, there's other kinds of homicides, more, way more kids do suicide. Uh, so that's not consoling. And it's not that we should care less. Actually, we care more. And that's the other piece that I, I, my, is my response to this idea of being terrified. And that is that we have, as we develop into really a postmodern sensibility now, we talk about modern, but in terms of uh, violence and uh, people being hurt, we're more in the postmodern. We just can't tolerate it at all. We have, our sensitivity is too high. And our outrage over this is too high. And I feel it myself. And I was talking to a friend of mine this morning, and he said, it, he was one of the I'm terrified guys. And he said, it's actually different even than terror. It's anger. It's, but there's not a word for it. I said outrage. And he said, well, outrage has been defined down lately. So, but it's just, this I can't, this is not tolerable. So, um, I, I, I don't know whether we're going to come up with some grand compromise in terms of mental health and guns. I don't know. Maybe these things tend to shift and move quickly when they do. And, and, and I hope so. But at any rate, um, you're gonna see a lot of metal detectors at schools. I mean, if they're there already, but this somehow feels like people aren't going to tolerate it. And uh, so we'll get it down to some vanishing point. It'll probably not ever be zero, at least anytime soon. But um, we have to put that terror in perspective and realize that we are living in an ever more peaceful culture including with gun violence. Gun violence is half of what it was in 1993, and the number of people who own guns decreased, as I pointed out before. But that sort of uh, relentless trend to a pacified society is punctuated with these florid acts of gun violence that, you know, are just sort of made for our media age and 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 probably abetted by that as these people seek a certain kind of notoriety so some thoughts on that and then um the last thing is um you know there's a lot of reaction particularly from the left when the right uh and the politicians and so forth talk about our thoughts and prayers are with you and I get it. You know, it's sort of a cover for the fact that they don't want to deal with the gun piece of the problem, and you know, so the culture wars continue. But I do want to say that thoughts and prayers are really uh, helpful and really called for. And I don't know how you do it, and you can do it your way. But if you don't have a way, there is a wonderful category of meditation out of Buddhism. That's, you know, the big category is loving kindness meditation. But the, 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 the category that's really appropriate here is this category of however you want to call it, Tonglen or whatever. It's exchanging self for other. And the idea is to metabolize the pain of the world and to metabolize the pain of other people. And so you, first of all, realize that there is at actually for you integral geeks, there's a lower right connectivity that we humans have. There's that morphogenic field, the, the field of um, energy. It's, it's, in the, it's an exterior, it's not just consciousness, that's culture, that's there too. But it's, the, it's an energy that we share with other people that can be metabolized when we turn towards it and uh, let it in. And so to do that, you would... Uh, well, the, the mother of the daughter who was on all the, the shows and was so, uh, just she just wrecked me. To feel her pain, to feel the pain of a parent who gets the news of their child, and breathe that in, and breathe out some version of relief, whatever it might be, and to feel the pain of these kids as they heard these shots and ran and hid and breathe it in, and breathe out relief of some sort—just a smile, a, a tear, an embrace, a warmth of the belly out. Even with this shooter himself and his craziness, to feel, breathe that in and breathe it out. Now, you may not want to do this, and you don't have to. Uh, Some people don't want to. The idea of breathing in this unwanted material, as they say, is not what they want to do, and fair enough. But if it's intriguing to you and um, uh, makes sense, try it. Uh, I know a lot of you do it anyway. We have a lot of practitioners here. But it is an actual help to the situation and to the people who are involved and to the whole catastrophe of the evolving human species. All right, so I'm going to now play the, I think, last 20-plus minutes of the a uh, podcast I did back in October of last year. We asked the question, how can this happen? Uh, and is this the kind of culture we wanna live in? And why is this particular problem so unique to America in, in terms of the developed world? Um, America has 15 times the number of guns is Great Britain, for instance, and 40 times the gun deaths. And that's true. The statistics, we, we uh, um, compare badly to uh, basically all developed countries. And uh, again, could integral theory tell us anything about this? And there are a couple of things that come to mind. And one is that, of course, cultures have uh, interiors. This is the lower left quadrant using Ken Wilber's aqua maps. And the lower left quadrant is the interior of the collective. And the interior of the collective uh, is, you know, every culture has its own sort of personality. And America is unique in that we started as a new world, at least from the European, from the settlers' perspective, not from the native perspective, but from um, the, the winners of that fight. Uh, this was a new world. And um, in the interiors, and here we're talking about the upper left, you know, the interior of the people who came here. What is it to leave everything you've ever known. And when we're talking in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, when you left Europe to come to America, you were essentially saying goodbye to everybody you know, everything you know, and there was not much expectation that you would be back, uh, at least for the masses of people. And so there's a self-selecting type that comes out of that. It's assertive, it's self-confident, it's adventuresome. Um, or, in the case of the Puritans, it's the most pious, the, the biggest religious nuts, the ones who really wouldn't buckle to the king's system, uh, in, uh, whether in terms of laws or in terms of religion. And so that sort of is the uh, enneotype, if you will, of the exterior, uh, or, I'm sorry, of the interior of the American psyche. And that's actually still true of immigrants. Uh, the most adventuresome, the most confident, the, you know the ones who are assertive. Uh, they're the ones who are drawn to leave what they know and come to a new country. So that is just part of the American spirit, if you will, uh, the American karma. And in the exteriors, um, this is the stuff. Uh, the the actual weaponry, the guns, uh, that's also different because we were a revolution in this new country. We were a duo do over a whole new continent, and so there was no control, uh, as there was in the countries of Europe and Japan, where uh, it was an evolution out of into the sort of traditional systems where you were not allowed to have weapons. You, you were not allowed to defend yourself against the king. You couldn't have the latest and greatest, you couldn't get your buddies together and build a catapult. You know, you couldn't own guns when guns came into being. That was all part of state control. So that's just, you know, part of how that worked in the en- exteriors. So guns have just always been in our hands over here. as as soon as we had them. And it's actually interesting to see the history of guns and how they uh, really developed after the Revolutionary War and in the Indian Wars, that was a big uh, sort of technological impetus. And this is always true of weaponry from the Bronze Age to again, catapults to nukes, is that weaponry has always led technology. Uh, And the reason is, is because weaponry Magnifies our power on the gross realm, on the realm of the physical. It's like engines, steam engines, and so forth. Anytime we can multiply our power, you know, that's what human beings are going to do. Now, that changes actually as we move into modernity. And uh, modernity, I no longer have to protect myself. There's police for that. There's uh, armies for that. There's courts for that. I don't have to protect my assets. You know, I don't, my money is not under my mattress. It's in a bank. I trust that when I call 911, the police will arrive. And mostly, and and this is what's really astonishing and sort of magical about evolution and, and development, is I trust the people around me. Because what happens as we move into a mature traditionalism and, and definitely when we move into a sort of a modern um, uh, self-identity, we get peaceful. We no longer think that the way forward is to take what somebody else has. Uh, the other tribe, the other people, uh, uh, it, it, the, because we have a system that is provided for our security, we can now turn our attention to the subtle realm. And that's where the power is. We wanna share ideas, we want to create together. And that's sort of how uh, that radical change uh, from traditionalism to modernity, where you get pacified, basically. But for people who are, uh, at the traditional stage of development, and this is, you know, where their self sense it's where they really feel at home. And this is about thirty-five percent of the population. Uh, that fear is still there. You know, uh, they don't have to worry about the king's men, but they sort of extrapolate that to fears of the tyranny of the United States government. Um, and even though risks are, are, are radically diminished, uh, we live in radically more peaceful times in modernity than in traditional and certainly pre-traditional times. It's not zero, so there is some risk. And uh, you know, a lot of my relatives uh, are gun owners and enthusiasts and some of them do open carry where they have their little holster on their belt. And I was back home talking to one of my cousin's kids actually. And he's one of these guys, he has a gun on his belt. And I was telling, he was asking me, do you own a gun? And I said, actually, I think I have one. My dad made me take when I left home, but I don't know where it is. And and so the, you know, the basic answer is no. And he said, you know, if you had kids and a wife, I would say you were irresponsible. But, you know, you're just you. You can do whatever you want. But that was his attitude, is that it would be irresponsible not to have some means of protection. And so what we see in the sort of gun culture of America is that it's not so much America's love affair with guns. It's traditionalists' love of guns. And... The number of people, the number of households with guns has been steadily dropping. It's now about 35% of the population own guns. Now, most of those people own a lot of guns, but that's also sort of a function of modernity. They could afford more guns. So the average person who owns guns owns eight and three percent of the population own half of the guns. So they own a lot more than eight, 20, 30, 40 guns. And so they own you know, 3% of the population of the United States owns 150 million guns. So, so as I was saying, this then becomes part of this larger culture war between traditionalism and modernity, and particularly post-modernity. It's funny. By the time you get to postmodernity, guns are like, ooh, you know, they're scary. Uh, they're they're, they're, they're uh, something that you want to uh, get away from, to leave behind. They're dangerous. Uh, they're, and they're also a cultural marker. And one of the things that, you know, I'm always stressing that as an integral practice is we want to understand how people who think differently than we do and live really in a different world space than we do. They have different receptors, they have different antenna, they have different ways of processing information. Um, and we know, I mean, there's statistics that show that conservatives in general, and we're talking about this is the 35%, the traditionalists uh, have you know, higher stress response, um, the, the galvanic skin response. They have uh, a, 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 they respond to fear in a way that is stronger than people at the higher levels who have divested some of that need to protect themselves to the culture at large. Uh, So that's where they live. And what they want us to know, this vast, vast majority of gun owners, is that they're good people and they're the salt of the earth and that having a gun is one of the ways that they mark something that is very important to their identity, and that that is that they can take care of themselves. And they don't want to get in anybody else's business, uh, except culturally, and that's a whole other story, but they don't want you to tell them what to do. And, um, and they also want you to know that if you, you wimpy postmodernist, find yourself, you know, lethally threatened by a bad guy, they'll shoot him for you. And you would probably be grateful that they did. And so, you know, it's, it becomes a cultural marker. And it's not unlike, in the, the terms of the cultural marker, a postmodernist gender bender who shaves half his hair and dyes the rest of the rest of the other half pink. And he too is, you know, kind of offending and, 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 and being willing to, uh, you know, sort of upset people in order to make a point about identity and worldview. And, you know, we want to look at this so that we could sort of relax our reflexive, you know, as I've often said, our integral practitioners are waist to neck deep in green postmodern worldview. And so most of us have that sort of reflexive uh, anti-gun thing. So, um, you know, in terms of the culture war, it's now to the point where, well, Back in the eighties, Republicans were 50-50 in terms of what they thought was more important, uh, gun rights or gun control. Now, Republicans are 75% for gun rights and 25% for gun control. And that's just a part of the continuing polarization. That's where we now have a majority of Americans who say gun rights are more important than gun control. Uh, and you know, there's plenty of demagoguing in both sides, and I don't want to get into the, all of the arguments. It was really interesting to see Wayne LaPierre, uh, the head of the NRA, on I guess it was Face the Nation yesterday, talking about that the real problem is the culture of Hollywood and uh, violent movies and uh, violent video games, and uh, it, 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 here we are, the poor NRA. We're trying to teach people responsible gun ownership and and gun usage. And this is what we're up against, is this culture of violence coming out of Hollywood, coming out of Hollywood liberals. Uh, So this is, uh, this this war, this culture war will continue. There's no doubt about it. Um, I do think that there will be, um, there will be, uh, a sea change, I'm thinking, at some point. And, and clearly, it's going the right direction in terms of the amount of gun violence. Um, and, and this is true not just in the, the United States. And by the way, other than gun violence, America is no more violent than any other uh, developed country in terms of uh, crime that is uh, perpetrated without guns. So... Um, this is just the nature of modernity. In fact, there was, I'll, I'll read a paragraph from a Washington Post article where they talk about this very idea and, and, and how it's creating a conundrum among criminologists about why we're getting so much more peaceful. And they say, Internationally, a decline in crime has been documented in many countries since the mid-1990s. According to the authors of a 30-country study on criminal victimization, there is no general agreement on all of the reasons for this decline. They say there's a general consensus that demographic change, specifically the shrinking proportion of adolescents across Europe, is a common factor causing decreases across Western countries. They also cite wider use of security measures in homes and businesses and other factors that reduce property crime. But other potential explanations, such as better policing or increased incarceration, which a lot of people point to, do not apply in Europe, where policies vary widely. Uh, so it's just a general move into a more pacified stage of development. And as I said, when we are now in a situation, excuse me, where um, only 35% of people own guns, and that's a decreasing number. It's a decreased 20 points since the 70s. That's remarkable. And millennials are the least gun-owning population in, in terms of age demographics. Uh, I think the tide could turn, and, and at some point even turn quickly. Um, I, I, I was, I was, uh, uh, sort of impressed by David Frum yesterday, who's a conservative columnist who was on one of the shows. And he was talking about that there's a cultural change when people realize that guns actually increase the danger of you and your family being hurt. There's, there's, you know... No argument that people who own guns have guns in the house have more gun violence. Uh, most of it being suicides, which is well over half of gun deaths are suicides. And guns allow you to be more impulsive and certainly more successful uh, if you're looking to off yourself. And, and then also accidents. And I think of myself. As a little kid, I, uh, my dad had guns and he was very scrupulous about, you know, keeping them locked away and so forth, but not so his ammunition. And I remember I was probably eight or nine years old and I got one of his red shotgun shells, those big shotgun shells. And I thought to myself, so all that happens in that gun is that a hammer hits that, Shotgun shell and makes it explode. And does, is that right? And, and how does that work? And there was the shotgun shell and my dad had a workbench downstairs in our basement. And he had a vice, you know, that you rip things in. And so I thought, I'm going uh, to see. And so I put that shotgun shell in the vice and I thought, I'm going to hit it with a hammer and see if it, exp- I don't know what I was thinking. But that that is indeed what i was thinking uh it, I, I i i grant you it doesn't make sense but to a nine year old it did i was just curious and i started hitting it and my mother was doing the laundry and she looked over and she like screamed you know she couldn't believe i was doing that and um you know that kind of things happen it's just it you as parents you know that you can't really control your kids 24 hours a day. And that's what David Frum was saying, was that um, at some point, as this continues to become known and people think about it and realize it, which actually is a you know, movement into a new stage of development, uh, they'll realize that you're not a good parent if you have guns in the house. You're actually a bad parent. He used the example of people smoking in cars when, you know, when I was a kid, my mom and dad smoked in the cars. We had the windows up. You would never do that now. Uh, They didn't do that because they were bad parents. They did that because they didn't realize that it would be harmful. And um, so that kind of change can happen quickly and radically. I I was also impressed. Just one last uh, thought here. That uh, Brett Stevens, who's another conservative columnist, came out for rescinding the Second Amendment, which you know is a, a whole other story. I've actually talked about the Second Amendment last time a bit. Um, you know, it, it talks about that because we need well-regulated militias. There should be no infringement on the ownership of guns, and somewhere along the line, in a plain reading of that amendment. Where's the well-regulated militias, you know? Uh, so anyway, uh, I also, uh, just actually one last point, and, I, uh, and, and this is from you, Corey, is that we, we were texting a little bit about this yesterday. You talked about some uh, wisdom that you really, uh, it came up for you. Yeah, all of this happened that came from one of your gurus and I'd be lovely. I think if you share that with, share it with everybody.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, you know, to sort of preempt that, and you know, I've got a couple other um, little layers I'd love to, to get your thoughts on Jeff, but um, yeah, you know, one of the things I noticed cause I was, I was awake um, when the shooting was happening and I was watching, you know, a lot of these uh, videos that were coming out and they were terrifying. I mean, it was, you know it was like being in the trenches it was um you know you're just watching you know these people terrified and you're watching bullets ricocheting off the pavement you know just six inches in front of the cameraman and you know it really pulls you in there and it's terrifying and when you get terrified like that when you know it pushes you into that um defensive state you know Keith Witt just did a call last Saturday talking about how to disarm these defensive states and oftentimes when you you're presented with that type of brutality, there's, there's no disarming it. You just, you just sort of slide into it. And it really starts making you question, you know, what the the value of humanity, what, what are we doing to ourselves? Why, why, why are we capable of such darkness and, um, you know, sociopathy and how is this within us? And is this, you know, are we being defined by, Sort of that 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 dark quality um, when these really traumatic events occur in real time, and I went to you know I went to bed afterwards and um, had some very restless sleep and you know a few nightmares and all that it you know it was it was deeply affecting and when I woke up in the morning um, something shifted for me and right away uh, popped in my head. And it's, you know, it's sort of cliche, but cliches are always prove themselves to be incredibly valuable at times like these. Um, and one of my favorite teachers of the 20th century popped into my head, who was uh, Mr. Rogers. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that if Jesus did come back in the 20th century, he took the form of Fred Rogers. Uh, <laughs> I think that man is a living saint. And if you're ever feeling sort of down about the world and down about reality, I suggest you watch a YouTube clip of... I think it's from like 1969 or something like the late sixties, early seventies. And Mr. Rogers is testifying to, you know, sort of a hard nosed uh, conservative at the time uh, about why PBS needs funding. And the amazing thing about Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, was that he talked to grown-ups the same way he talked to kids. He was the same guy on camera that he was off camera. And he, he, he carried that grace with him the entire time. And if you watch this YouTube clip, uh, you, you actually watch, you know, again, this, this conservative senator who's denying money for PBS, you just kind of watch him melt right before your eyes. And 15 minutes out, you know, of, of Mr. Rogers talking, uh, the conservative senator says, congratulations, you've got your funding. So you're actually watching in real time, you know, how, how debate, how effective debate, um, how effective it can be. Um, it's, you know, so I suggest you guys watch that. So anyway, Mr. Rogers popped into my head and, you know, one of, one of, uh, I think his essential teachings. That I love the most that got really popular after nine 11 was, you know, whenever something catastrophic happens, I always think to myself, look for the helpers, right? Look for the helpers, look for the people who are displaying just incredible courage in the face of terror are running towards danger and you know that really helped me release a lot of that sort of um darkness that i was feeling so I, i made a post on facebook that was pretty well received and i'll just i'll just read it here um whatever it was i think it's critical to remember that there were far more heroes than villains in las vegas last night i've seen video after video of people running into danger in order to help others ordinary citizens working together and risking their own lives to give people cover and help them escape the kill zone and bring the injured to the hospital. As the saintly Fred Rogers always said, look for the helpers. It does not diminish the pain and trauma and heartbreak a single bit, but it does offer an important reminder of the intrinsic goodness of human beings, which is too easily forgotten in the era we currently find ourselves in." And, um, Again, that was a shift for me, and I, and I took it on as, as an invitation for practice, right? So I, I actually started seeking out the more positive videos, the heroic videos, the images of these heroes uh, in the hospital. Who, you know, I saw one post, and it was like, um, you know, here's the, the random stranger who saved my sister's life, and he had a bullet in his neck, and he's smiling, you know, in the emergency room uh, for this, this uh, snapshot. And it was gorgeous. And, you know, my eyes welled up and it it was gorgeous just to feel, you know, again, in the face of this monstrosity, um, actually consciously deciding to say, you know, I I need to touch in with the good, the intrinsic goodness of human beings. And, you know, because it helps liberate so much of that and it helps remind you that, um, you know, evil is not the default mode of humanity um, quite the contrary that's why it's so shocking when it does happen yeah, that's Right. now that said you know we take all of that we take all the heartbreak we take all of the grace we take it together and then you know uh, we look to our leaders and we get very frustrated as to why you know why isn't something happening out of this why why is it so difficult to implement any meaningful change when it comes to gun laws and you know one of the insights jeff that occurred to me well sort of twofold uh, a you were mentioning um you know sort of the the uh, the beauty the the dignity and the disasters of of uh modernity and you know one of those disasters i think was um you know in in the modern world we are allowed we're afforded sort of this distance with nature which means a distance with death you know we don't we don't kill our own food we go to the supermarket. and pick it up we don't you know we have guns now where it used to be you know 500 years if you wanted to kill someone you'd have to stab him with something look him in the eye and you know feel him die and um with guns it's it's been depersonalized it's very distant it's you know and i sort of i I think in that space uh that we have that the sort of the luxury of having this much space from death you know the downside of that is sort of the fetishization of death and, um, you know, Wayne Pierre t- talks about violent films and video games and all that. And, you know, I think a more integral point of view would to say, would be to say that, you know, these things are symptomatic of the deeper issue. They're not the cause of our fetishization of guns, our fetishization of weapons, but they're symptomatic of that. Um, there's a reason why there's a demand for these movies and for these video games. And it's not the movies and the games themselves that are creating that demand. So that then further animates, you know, my own frustration that we can't seem to get anything done here and i've sort of honed in on what i think is one of the central dilemmas facing liberals right now facing the left which is you know one of the greatest contributions that postmodernism gave to the world is this really refined perception observation acknowledgement of how central language is to how we think, how we act, and how we self-organize, right? I mean, there's this, there's this postmodern, and, and this is where so much of the pathological liberalism that we like to talk about micro microaggressions, safe spaces, all of this is an effort to sort of better regulate our cultural conversation. And it's interesting to me that this, in many ways, was one of postmodernism's greatest contributions. This really. Acute understanding of how central languages is and how consciousness is a gas that expands to fill whatever container you allow for it, and language is that container and and yet you know Ken Wilber talks about um, you know Jeff early in the episode you mentioned how this is starting a dialogue, and my frustration is that I see this dialogue being generated time and time again and just stalling out, and I think one of the central dilemmas is that Ken has has taken a deeper look at the lower left quadrant. Well, really all the quadrants. And he notes how there's an inner and an outer to each of these quadrants. So for the lower left, there's an inner of the lower left, and there's an outer of the lower left. These are called zone three and zone four. The inner of the lower left is sort of that sloppy soupy dance that we do um, when we're relating with each other, right? And I, I can't really I, – I, I can contribute to the tone of our – lower left or inner of the lower left, but I can't change it myself. I can't, you know, there's nothing I can do there. It's just sort of, it, it is what it is. Um, but then there's the outer of the lower left, which is, which is zone four. And, you know, that has to do with um, sort of the regulative patterns, the, the the cohesion, the rules of discourse in a lot of ways. What I've noticed is that the conservatives are, masters at defining that outer of the lower left. They're masters at regulating what is and what is not allowed to be talked about by culture. And this is a phenomenon called the Overton window where the Overton window describes, you know, sort of the limits of public discourse. Um, You're allowed to talk about everything sort of in here, but nothing outside of there. And Donald Trump, one of the things that made him so notable was how easily he was able to shift that Overton window. All of a sudden, people were allowed to talk about things that even just six months prior, they were, no, they were not allowed to talk about. And the conservatives, I think, time and time again, have demonstrated a mastery of controlling that Overton window. So, you know, whenever these things happen, the first thing that the conservatives say, this is not the time to talk about gun legislation. That's them controlling the discourse. That's them actually establishing being the referees Deciding what we're allowed to and what we're not allowed to talk
0: yeah. about. Yeah, and how well did they do with that?
1: Well, I, you know, it, it's interesting. I think. Um,
0: I mean, this yes, and this is the 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 sort of soup of the and sort of the froth of moving forward. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I I absolutely agree. I you know, I totally agree. They and, should- did, did they stop the conversation? No.
1: I think for people on the right, they stopped the conversation, but the, you know, the people on the left are still talking about it. I don't and know. You know, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, you know, my surprise, Jeff, was that, was that more of this didn't happen after Sandy Hook, right? Which was the most brutal. Yeah. over. And, and we got the same response. Now is not the time to talk about it. And guess what? The time to talk about it never, it, it never happened again. We never had yeah. another opportunity. No. no are just come around and say, okay, well, it's been three weeks since all that happened. Now we can have you know, a reasonable discussion that's not animated by emotion and, you know, and all of that. Uh, And I get why you don't want to have that conversation when tensions are high. I understand that. And yet, you know, statistically we're having a mass shooting every day of the year. Um, So the time to have this conversation is never going to occur if we allow them to continue regulating the discussion. And, and I think this is, you know, I, I think it's, it's my challenge to liberals is, you know, when you're when you're trying to, to reestablish new rules of discourse, don't focus on the micro, right? Don't focus on the microaggressions, even is, is, is one of their favorite terms. Back up and look at the macro. Back up and and come up with some broader generalizations that can help us actually move the conversation forward. And you know, one of the one of the only people on the left who I think have succeeded in shifting that overton window was Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders made it okay for us to talk about single payer again. Um that uh, no liberal was successfully able to shift the window so much uh to start having those conversations as Bernie. That's that's great and we should learn from that. Um because he went bold, right? And that boldness I think helped shape um helped reshape the the sort of the space in which we can relate with one another and um, you know what we're allowed to say, what we're not allowed to say. um, and I, and I see that as positive. And I want to see liberals doing a bit more work uh, in terms of trying to better regulate um, that mode of discourse.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think we're just, uh, you know, discoursing our way into a better world. And, yeah. you know, everybody's got their, you know, trying to impose their rules on other people. And it's just part of the mess of okay. it which is a fruitful mess yeah, because, and we can you know see that even in terms of uh guns and gun death the number of people uh, owning them down the number yeah. of, of gun deaths down by half since yeah. 1993 uh the, the guns used in crimes down i have this i don't know if you can see this mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's just uh we, we got it. The, the big story is is that we are becoming more and more peaceful, more and more sensitive, and we're having all of our crazy arguments as a means of getting us there. That's how I see it. Yep, so
1: I do not disagree.